Hey y'all, and welcome to Story Hour. This week we are finishing up Liber Primus. This is the end of the first part of The Red Book by Carl Jung. If you haven't checked out parts one and two of this series, you might want to take a moment, go back to those and listen. Or if you like to just jump straight into the action and want to hear about Carl Jung's visions, which are quite intense, somewhat disturbing, but overall very amazing, you can just start here and you can always go back. This will be the third and final part of our The Red Book journey. This is one of my favorite books of all time. If you guys enjoyed this and would like to read the rest of it for yourselves, be sure to pick up the Red Book Liber Novus, a reader's edition. It is a red-covered book, and it is amazing. For now, I hope you guys enjoy. Chapter 9 of the Red Book, Mysterium Encounter. On the night when I considered the essence of the god, I became aware of an image. I lay in a dark depth. An old man stood before me. He looked like one of the old prophets. A black serpent lay at his feet. Some distance away I saw a house with columns. A beautiful maiden steps out of the door. She walks uncertainly, and I see that she is blind. The old man waves to me, and I follow him to the house at the foot of the sheer wall of rock. The serpent creeps behind us. Darkness reigns inside the house. We are in a high hall with glittering walls. A bright stone the color of water lies in the background. As I look into its reflection, the images of Eve, the tree, and the serpent appear to me. After this, I catch sight of Odysseus and his journeys on the high seas. Suddenly, a door opens on the right, onto a garden full of bright sunshine. We step outside, and the old man says to me, Do you know where you are? I say, I am a stranger here, and everything seems so strange to me, anxious as in a dream. Who are you? I am Elijah, and this is my daughter Salome. I say, The daughter of Herod, the bloodthirsty woman? Elijah says, Why do you judge so? You see that she is blind. She is my daughter, the daughter of the prophet. I say, What miracle has united you? Elijah, it is no miracle. It was so from the beginning. My wisdom and my daughter are one. I am shocked. I am incapable of grasping it. Elijah says, Consider this. Her blindness and my sight have made us companions through eternity. I say, Forgive my astonishment. Am I truly in the underworld? Salome says, Do you love me? How can I love you? How do you come to this question? I see only one thing. You are Salome, a tiger. Your hands are stained with the blood of the Holy One. How should I love you? Salome says, You will love me. I? Love you? Who gives you the right to such thoughts? Salome says, I love you. I say, Leave me be. I dread you, you beast. Salome, You do me wrong. Elijah is my father, and he knows the deepest mysteries. The walls of his house are made of precious stones. His wells hold healing water, and his eyes see the things of the future. And what wouldn't you give for a single look into the infinite unfolding of what is to come? Are these not worth a sin for you? Aye, your temptation is devilish. I long to be back in the upper world. It is dreadful here. How oppressive and heavy is the air. Elijah, what do you want? The choice is yours. Aye, but I do not belong to the dead. I live in the light of day. Why should I torment myself here with Salome? Do I not have enough of my own life to deal with? Elijah says, You heard what Salome said. I say, I cannot believe that you, the prophet, can recognize her as a daughter and a companion. Is she not engendered from heinous seed? Was she not vain greed and criminal lust? He replies, But she loved a holy man. I say, And shamefully shed his precious blood? He replies, She loved the prophet, who announced the new God to the world. She loved him. Do you understand that? For she is my daughter. I say, Do you think that because she is your daughter, she loved the prophet and John, the father? He replies, By her love shall you know her. But how did she love him? Do you call that love, I say? Elijah says, What else was it? I am horrified. Who wouldn't be horrified if Salome loved him? He replies, Are you cowardly? Consider this. I and my daughter have been one since eternity. I say, You pose dreadful riddles. How could it be that this unholy woman and you, the prophet of your God, could be one? Elijah replies, Why are you amazed? But you see it. We are together. I say, What my eyes see is exactly what I cannot grasp. You, Elijah, you are a prophet, the mouth of God, and she a bloodthirsty horror. You are the symbol of the most extreme contradiction. Elijah says, We are real and not symbols. I see how the black serpent writhes up the tree and hides in the branches. Everything becomes gloomy and doubtful. Elijah rises. I follow and we go soundly back through the hall. Doubt tears me apart. 
It is all so unreal, and yet a part of my longing remains behind. Will I come again? Salome loves me. Do I love her? I hear wild music, a tambourine, a sultry moonlit night, the bloody staring head of the Holy One. Fear seizes me. I rush out. I am surrounded by the dark night. It is pitch black all around me. Who murdered the hero? Is this why Salome loves me? Do I love her, and did I therefore murder the hero? She is one with the prophet, one with John, but also one with me? Woe, was she the hand of the god? I do not love her, I fear her. Then the spirit of the depths spoke to me and said, Therein you acknowledge her divine power. Must I love Salome? It be useful here to go into a description of what Jung encountered and how he described it at a seminar he had in 1925. He says, I used the same technique of the descent, but this time I went much deeper. The first time I should say I reached a depth of about 1,000 feet, but this time it was a cosmic depth. It was like going to the moon, or like the feeling of a descent into empty space. First, the picture was of a crater, or a ring chain of mountains, and my feeling association was that of one dead, as if oneself were a victim. It was the mood of the land of the hereafter. I could see two people, an old man with a white beard, and a young girl who was very beautiful. I assumed them to be real, and listened to what they were saying. The old man said he was Elijah, and I was quite shocked, but she was even more upsetting because she was Salome. I said to myself that this was a queer mixture, Salome and Elijah, but Elijah assured me that he and Salome had been together since eternity. This also upset me. With them was a black serpent who had an affinity for me. I stuck to Elijah as being the most reasonable of the lot, for he seemed to have a mind. I was exceedingly doubtful about Salome. We had a long conversation, but I did not understand it. Of course, I thought of the fact of my father being clergyman as being the explanation of my having figures like this. How about this old man, then? Salome was not to be touched upon. It was only much later that I found her association with Elijah quite natural. Whenever you take journeys like this, you find a young girl with an old man. Young then refers to examples of this pattern in the work of Melville and the Gnostic legend of Simon Magus. In myths, the snake is a frequent counterpart of the hero. There are numerous accounts of the affinity. Therefore, the presence of the snake was an indication of a hero myth. Of Salome, he said, Salome is an anima figure, blind because, though connecting the conscious and unconscious, she did not see the operation of the unconscious. Elijah is the personification of the cognitional element, Salome of the erotic. Elijah is the figure of the old prophet filled with wisdom. One could speak of these two figures as personifications of logos and eros, very specifically shaped. This is practical for intellectual play. But as Logos and Eros are purely speculative terms, not scientific in any sense, but irrational, it is very much better to leave the figures as they are, namely as events, experiences. With this context in mind, let us journey back into the story. This play that I witnessed is my play, not your play. It is my secret, not yours. You cannot imitate me. My secret remains virginal, and my mysteries are inviolable. They belong to me and cannot belong to you. You have your own. He who enters into his own must grope through what lies at hand. He must sense his way from stone to stone. He must embrace the worthless and the worthy with the same love. A mountain is nothing, and a grain of sand holds kingdoms, or also nothing. Judgment must fall from you, even taste, but above all pride, even when it is based on merit. Utterly poor, miserable, humiliated, ignorant, go on through the gate. Turn your anger against yourself, since only you stop yourself from looking and from living. The mystery play is soft like air and thin smoke, and you are raw matter that is disturbingly heavy. But let your hope, which is your highest good and highest ability, lead the way and serve you as a guide in the world of darkness, since it is of like substance with the forms of the world. The scene of the mystery play is a deep place, like the crater of a volcano. My deep interior is a volcano that pushes out the fiery molten mass of the unformed and the undifferentiated. Thus my interior gives birth to the children of chaos. Of the primordial mother. He who enters the crater also becomes chaotic matter. He melts. The formed in him dissolves and binds itself anew with the children of chaos, the powers of darkness, the ruling and the seducing, the compelling and the alluring, the divine and the devilish. These powers stretch beyond my certainties and limits on all sides, and connect me with all forms and with all distant beings and things, through which the inner tidings of their being and their character develop in me. Because I have fallen into the source of chaos, into the primordial beginning, I myself become smelted anew in the connection with the primordial beginning, which at the same time is what has been and what is becoming. At first I come to the primordial beginning in myself, but because I am part of the matter and formation of the world, I also come into the primordial beginning of the world in the first place. 
I have certainly participated in life as someone formed and determined, but only through my formed and determined consciousness, and through this in a formed and determined piece of the whole world, but not in an unformed and undetermined aspects of the world that likewise are given to me. Yet it is given only to my depths, not to my surface, which is formed and determined consciousness. The powers of my depths are predetermination and pleasure. Predetermination or forethinking is Prometheus, who without determined thoughts brings the chaotic to form, and definition, who digs the channels and holds the object before pleasure. Forethinking also comes before thought, but pleasure is the force that desires and destroys forms without form and definition. It loves the form in itself that it takes hold of, and destroys the forms that it does not take. The forethinker is a seer, but pleasure is blind. It does not foresee, but desires what it touches. Forethinking is not powerful in itself, and therefore does not move, but pleasure is power, and therefore it moves. Forethinking needs pleasure to be able to come to form. Pleasure needs forethinking to come to form, which it requires. If pleasure lacks forming, pleasure would dissolve in the manifoldness and become splintered and powerless through unending division, lost to the unending. If a form does not contain and compress pleasure within itself, it cannot reach the higher, since it always flows like water from above to below. All pleasure, when left alone, flows into the deep sea and ends in the deathly stillness of dispersal into unending space. Pleasure is not older than forethinking, and forethinking is not older than pleasure. Both are equally old, and in nature, intimately one. Only in man does the separate existence of both principles become apparent. Apart from Elijah and Salome, I found the serpent as a third principle. It is a stranger to both principles, although it is associated with both. The serpent taught me the unconditional difference in essence between the two principles in me. If I look across from forethinking to pleasure, I first see the deterrent poisonous serpent. If I feel from pleasure across to forethinking, likewise I feel first this cold, cruel serpent. The serpent is the earthly essence of man of which he is not conscious. Its character changes according to peoples and lands, since it is the mystery that flows to him from the nourishing earth mother. The earthly separates forethinking and pleasure in man, but not in itself. The serpent has the weight of earth in itself, but also its changeability and germination from which everything that becomes emerges. It is always the serpent that causes man to become enslaved now to one, now to the other principle, so that it becomes error. One cannot live with forethinking alone, or with pleasure alone. You need both. But you cannot be in forethinking and in pleasure at the same time. You must take turns being in forethinking and pleasure, obeying the prevailing law, unfaithful to the other, so to speak. But men prefer one or the other. Some love thinking and establish the art of life on it. They practice their thinking and their circumspection, so they lose their pleasure. Therefore, they are old and have a sharp face. The others love pleasure. They practice their feeling and living. Thus, they forget thinking. Therefore, they are young and blind. Those who think base the world on thought. Those who feel on feeling. You find truth and error in both. The way of life writhes like the serpent from right to left and from left to right, from thinking to pleasure and from pleasure to thinking. Thus, the serpent is an adversary and a symbol of enmity but also a wise bridge that connects right and left through longing, much needed by our life. The place where Elijah and Salome live together is a dark space and a bright one. The dark space is the space of forethinking. It is dark, so he who lives there requires vision. This space is limited, so forethinking does not lead into the extended distance, but into the depth of the past and the future. The crystal is the formed thought that reflects what is to come and what has gone before. Even the serpent show me that my next step leads to pleasure, and from there again on lengthy wanderings like Odysseus. He went astray when he played his trick at Troy. The bright garden is the space of pleasure. He who lives there needs no vision. He feels the unending. A thinker who descends into his forethinking finds his next step leading into the garden of Salome. Therefore the thinker fears his forethought, although he lives on the foundation of forethinking. The visible surface is safer than the underground. Thinking protects against the way of error, and therefore it leads to petrification. A thinker should fear Salome, since she wants his head, especially if he is a holy man. A thinker cannot be a holy person, otherwise he loses his head. It does not help to hide oneself in thought. There the solidification overtakes you. You must turn back to motherly forethought to obtain renewal, but forethought leads to Salome. Because I was a thinker and caught sight of the hostile principle of pleasure from forethinking, it appeared to me as Salome. If I had been one who felt and had groped my way toward forethinking, then it would have actually appeared to me as a serpent encoiled demon if I had actually seen it, but I would have been blind. Therefore I would have felt only slippery, dead, dangerous, allegedly overcome, insipid, and mawkish things, and I would have pulled back with the same shudder I felt in turning from Salome. The thinker's passions are bad, therefore he has no pleasure. The thoughts of one who feels are bad, therefore he has no thoughts. 
He who prefers to think than to feel leaves his feeling to rot in darkness. It does not grow ripe, but in moldiness produces sick tendrils that do not reach the light. He who prefers to feel than to think leaves his thinking in darkness, where it spins its nets in gloomy places, desolate webs in which mosquitoes and gnats become enmeshed. The thinker feels the disgust of feeling, since the feeling in him is mainly disgusting. The one who feels thinks the disgust of thinking, since the thinking in him is mainly disgusting. So the serpent lies between the thinker and the one who feels. They are each other's poison and healing. In the garden it had to become apparent to me that I love Salome. This recognition struck me, since I had not thought of it. What a thinker does not think he believes does not exist. And what one who feels does not feel he believes does not exist. You begin to have a presentiment of the whole when you embrace your opposite principle, since the whole belongs to both principles, which grow from one root. Elijah said, You should recognize her through her love. Not only do you venerate the object, but the object also sanctifies you. Salome loved the prophet, and this sanctified her. The prophet loved God, and this sanctified him. But Salome did not love God, and this profaned her. But the prophet did not love Salome, and this profaned him. And thus they were each other's poison and death. May the thinking person accept his pleasure, and the feeling person accept his own thought. Such leads one along the way. Chapter 10. Instruction. On the following night, I was led to a second image. I am standing in the rocky depth that seems to me like a crater. Before me, I see the house with columns. I see Salome walking along the length of a wall toward the left, touching the wall like a blind person. The serpent follows her. The old man stands at the door and waves to me. Hesitantly, I draw closer. He calls Salome back. She is like someone suffering. I cannot detect any sacrilege in her nature. Her hands are white and her face has a gentle expression. The serpent lies before them. I stand before them clumsily like a stupid boy, overwhelmed by uncertainty and ambiguity. The old man eyes me searchingly and says, What do you want here? I reply, Forgive me. It is not obtrusiveness or arrogance that leads me here. I am here perchance, not knowing what I want. A longing that stayed behind in your house yesterday has brought me here. You see, prophet, I am tired. My head is as heavy as lead. I am lost in my ignorance. I have toyed with myself enough. I played hypocritical games with myself, and they all would have disgusted me, were it not clever to perform what others expect from us in the world of men. It seems to me as if I were more real here, and yet I do not like being here. Wordlessly, Elijah and Salome step inside the house. I follow them reluctantly. A feeling of guilt torments me. Is it bad conscience? I would like to turn back, but I cannot. I stand before the play of fire in the shining crystal. I see the splendor, the mother of God, with the child. Peter stands in front of her in admiration. Then Peter alone with the key, the Pope with a triple crown, a Buddha sitting rigidly in a circle of fire, a many-armed bloody goddess. It is Salome desperately wringing her hands. It takes hold of me. She is my own soul. And now I see Elijah in the image of the stone. Elijah and Salome stand smiling before me. I say, These visions are full of torment, and the meaning of these images is dark to me. Elijah, please shed some light. Elijah turns away silently and leads the way toward the left. Salome enters a colonnade to the right. Elijah leads me into an even darker room. A burning red lamp hangs from the ceiling. I sit down exhausted. Elijah stands before me leaning on a marble lion in the middle of the room. He says, Are you anxious? Your ignorance is to blame for your bad conscience. Not knowing is guilt. But you believe that it is the urge toward forbidden knowledge that causes your feeling of guilt? Why do you think you are here? I reply, I don't know. I sank into this place when unknowingly I tried resisting the not known. So here I am, astonished and confused, an ignorant fool. I experienced strange things in your house, things that frighten me and whose meaning is dark to me. He says, if we're not your law to be here, how would you be here? I say, I'm afflicted by fatal weakness, my father. You are evasive. You cannot extricate yourself from the law. How can I extricate myself from what is unknown to me, which I cannot reach with either feeling or presentiment? He says, You're lying. Do you not know that you yourself recognize what it means if Salome loves you? I say, You're right. A doubtful and uncertain thought arose in me, but I've forgotten it again. Elijah says, You have not forgotten it. It burned deep inside of you. Are you cowardly? Or can you not differentiate this thought from your own self, enough so that you wish to claim it for yourself? I say, the thought went too far from me, and I shun far-fetched ideas. They are dangerous, since I am a man, and you know how much men are accustomed to seeing thoughts as their very own, 
so that they eventually confuse them with themselves. He said, Will you therefore confuse yourself with a tree or animal, because you look at them and because you exist with them in one and the same world? Must you be your thoughts, because you are in the world of your thoughts? But your thoughts are just as much outside yourself as trees and animals are outside your body. I say, I understand. My thought world was for me more word than world. I thought of my thought world. It is I. He replies, Do you say to your human world and every being outside of you, your I? I say, I stepped into your house, my father, with the fear of a schoolboy, but you taught me salutary wisdom. I can also consider my thoughts as being outside myself. That helps me to return to that terrible conclusion that my tongue is reluctant to express. I thought that Salome loves me because I resemble John or you. This thought seemed unbelievable to me. That's why I rejected it and thought that she loves me because I'm really quite opposite to you, that she loves her badness and my badness. This thought was devastating. Elijah is silent. Heaviness lies on me. Then Salome steps in, comes over to me, and lays her arm around my shoulder. She takes me for her father in whose chair I sat. I dare neither move nor speak. She says, I know that you are not my father. You are his son, and I am your sister. You, Salome, my sister? Was this the terrible attraction that emanated from you? That unnameable horror of you, of your touch? Who was our mother? She says, Mary. I respond, Is it a hellish dream? Mary, our mother? What madness lurks in your words? The mother of our Savior? Our mother? When I crossed your threshold today, I foresaw calamity. Alas, it has come. Are you out of your sense of Salome? Elijah, protector of the divine law, speak. Is this a devilish spell cast by the rejected? How can she say such a thing? Or are you both out of your senses? You are symbols and Mary is a symbol. I am simply too confused to see through you now. Elijah responded, You may call us symbols for the same reason that you can also call your fellow men symbols if you wish to. But we are just as real as your fellow men. You invalidate nothing and solve nothing by calling us symbols. I responded, You plunge me into terrible confusion. Do you wish to be real? He responded, We are certainly what you call real. Here we are, and you have to accept us. The choice is yours. I am silent. Salome has removed herself. Uncertainly, I look around. Behind me, a high golden red flame burns on a round altar. The serpent has encircled the flame. Its eyes glitter with golden reflections. Swaying, I turn to the exit. As I step out into the hall, I see a powerful line going before me. Outside is a wide, cold, starry night. It is no small matter to acknowledge one's yearning. For this, many need to make a particular effort at honesty. All too many do not want to know where their yearning is, because it would seem to them impossible or too distressing. And yet yearning is the way of life. If you do not acknowledge your yearning, then you do not follow yourself, but go on foreign ways that others have indicated to you. So you do not live your life but an alien one. But who should live your life if you do not live it? It is not only stupid to exchange your own life for an alien one, but also a hypocritical game. Because you can never really live the life of others. You can only pretend to do it, deceiving the other in yourself, since you can only live your own life. If you give up yourself, you live in it, in others. Thereby you become selfish to others, and thus you deceive others. Everyone thus believes that such a life is possible. It is, however, only apish imitation. Through giving into your apish appetite, you infect others, because the ape stimulates the apish. So you turn yourself and others into apes. Through reciprocal imitation, you live according to the average expectation. The image of the hero was set up for all in every age through the appetite for imitation. Therefore, the hero was murdered, since we have all been aping him. Do you know why you cannot abandon apishness? For fear of loneliness and defeat. To live oneself means to be one's own task. Never say that it is a pleasure to live oneself. It will be no joy but a long suffering, since you must become your own creator. If you want to create yourself, then you do not begin with the best and the highest, but with the worst and the deepest. Therefore say that you are reluctant to live yourself. The flowing together of the stream of life is not joy but pain, since it is power against power, guilt, and shatters the sanctified. The image of the mother of God with the child that I foresee indicates to me the mystery of the transformation. If forethinking and pleasure unite in me, a third arises from them, the divine son, who is the supreme meaning, the symbol, the passing over into new creation. I do not myself become the supreme meaning, or the symbol, but the symbol becomes in me such that it has substance, and I mine. Thus I stand like Peter in worship before the miracle of the transformation and the becoming real of the God in me. Although I am not the son of the God myself, 
I represent him nevertheless, as one who was a mother to the God, and one therefore to whom in the name of the God the freedom of the binding and loosing has been given. The binding and loosing take place in me, but insofar as it takes place in me, and I am a part of the world, it also takes place through me in the world, and no one can hinder it. It doesn't take place according to the way of my will, but in the way of unavoidable effect. I am not master over you, but the being of the God in me. I lock the past with one key, with the other I open the future. This takes place through my transformation, the miracle of transformational commands. I am its servant, just as the Pope is. You see how incredible it was to believe such of oneself. It applies not to me, but to the symbol. The symbol becomes my lord and unfailing commander. It will fortify its reign and change itself into a fixed and riddling image, whose meaning turns completely inward, and whose pleasure radiates outward like a blazing fire, a Buddha in the flames. Because I sink into my symbol to such an extent, the symbol changes me from my one into my other. And that cruel goddess of my interior, my womanly pleasure, my own other, the tormented tormentor, that which is to be tormented. I have interpreted these images, as best I can, with poor words. In the moment of your bewilderment, follow your forethinking and not your blind desire, since forethinking leads you to the difficulties that should always come first. They come nevertheless. If you look for a light, you will fall first into an even deeper darkness. In this darkness, you find a light with a weak reddish flame that gives only a low brightness, but it is enough for you to see your neighbor. It is exhausting to reach this goal that seems to be no goal. And so it is good. I am paralyzed and therefore ready to accept. My forethinking rests on my lion, my power. I held to the sanctified form and didn't want to allow the chaos to break through its dams. I believed in the order of the world and hated everything disorganized and unformed. Therefore, above all, I had to realize that my own law had brought me to this place. As the God developed in me, I thought he was part of myself. I thought that my I included him, and therefore I took him for my thought. But I also considered that my thoughts were parts of my I. Thus I entered into my thoughts, and into the thinking about the God, in that I took him for part of myself. On account of my thoughts, I had left myself. Therefore myself became hungry and made God into a selfish thought. If I leave myself, my hunger will drive me to find myself in my object, that is, in my thought. Therefore you love reasonable and orderly thoughts since you could not endure it if yourself was in disorder, that is, unsuitable thoughts. Through your selfish wish, you pushed out of your thoughts everything that you do not consider ordered, that is, unfitting. You create order according to what you know. You do not know the thoughts of chaos, and yet they exist. My thoughts are not myself, and my eye does not embrace the thought. Your thought has this meaning and that, not just one, but many meanings. No one knows how many. My thoughts are not myself, but exactly like the things of the world alive and dead. Just as I am not damaged through living in a partly chaotic world, so too I am not damaged if I live in my partly chaotic thought world. Thoughts are natural events that you do not possess and whose meaning you only imperfectly recognize. Thoughts grow in me like a forest, populated by many different animals. But man is domineering in his thinking, and therefore he kills the pleasure of the forest and that of the wild animals. Man is violent in his desire, and he himself becomes a forest and a forest animal. Just as I have freedom in the world, I also have freedom in my thought. Freedom is conditional. To certain things of the world I must say, you should not be thus, but you should be different. Yet first I look carefully at their nature, otherwise I cannot change it. I proceed in the same way with certain thoughts. You change those things of the world that, not being useful in themselves, endanger your welfare. Proceed likewise with your thoughts. Nothing is complete, and much is in dispute. The way of life is transformation, not exclusion. Well-being is a better judge than the law. But as I became aware of the freedom in my thought world, Salome embraced me, and I thus became a prophet, since I had found pleasure in the primordial beginning, in the forest, and in the wild animals. It stands too close to reason for me to set myself on par with my visions, and for me to take pleasure in seeing. I am in danger of believing that I myself am significant, since I see the significant. This will always drive us crazy, and we transform the vision into foolishness and monkey business since we cannot desist from imitation. Just as my thinking is the son of forethinking, so is my pleasure the daughter of love, of the innocent and conceiving mother of God. Aside from Christ, Mary gave birth to Salome. Therefore Christ in the gospel of the Egyptians says to Salome, Eat every herb, but do not eat the bitter. And when Salome wanted to know, Christ spoke to her, If you crush the covering of shame, and when the two become one, and the male with the female, neither male nor female, forethinking is the procreative, Love is the receptive. Both are beyond this world. Here are understanding and pleasure. We only suspect the other. 
It would be madness to claim that they are in this world. So much that is riddling and cunning coils around this light. I won the power back again from the depths, and it went before me like a lion. Chapter 11. Resolution On the third night, deep longing to continue experiencing the mystery seized me. The struggle between doubt and desire was great in me. But suddenly I saw that I stood before a steep ridge in a wasteland. It is a dazzling bright day. I catch sight of the prophet high above me. His hand makes an averting movement, and I abandon my decision to climb up. I wait below, gazing upward. I look. To the right is a dark night. To the left is a bright day. The rock separates day and night. On the dark side lies a big black serpent. On the bright side, a white serpent. They thrust their heads towards each other, eager for battle. Elijah stands on the heights above them. The serpents pounce on one another, and a terrible wrestling ensues. The black serpent seems to be stronger. The white serpent draws back. Great billows of dust rise from the place of struggle. But then I see. The black serpent pulls itself back again. The front part of its body has become white. Both serpents curl about themselves, one in light, the other in darkness. Elijah says, What did you see? I respond, I saw the fight of two formidable serpents. It seemed to me as if the black would overcome the white serpent, but behold, the black one withdrew, and its head and the top part of its body had turned white. Elijah responded, Do you understand that? I said, I have thought it over, but I cannot understand it. Should it mean that the power of the good light will become so great that even the darkness that resists it will be illumined by it? Elijah climbs before me into the heights, to a very high summit. I follow. On the peak we come to some masonry made of huge blocks. It is a round embankment on the summit. Inside lies a large courtyard, and there is a mighty boulder in the middle, like an altar. The prophet stands on his stone and says, This is the temple of the sun. This place is a vessel that collects the light of the sun. Elijah climbs down from the stone. His form becomes smaller in descending, and finally becomes dwarf-like, unlike himself. I ask, Who are you? He says, I am Mime, and I will show you the wellsprings. The collected light becomes water and flows in many springs from the summit into the valleys of the earth. He then dives into a crevice. I follow him down into a dark cave. I hear the rippling of a spring. I hear the voice of the dwarf from below. Here are my wells. Whoever drinks from them becomes wise. But I cannot reach down. I lose courage. I leave the cave and, doubting, pace back and forth in the square of the yard. Everything appears to me strange and incomprehensible. It is solitary and deathly silent here. The air is clear and cool, as on the remotest heights. A wonderful flood of sunlight all around. The great wall surrounds me. A serpent crawls over the stone. It is the serpent of the prophet. How did it come out of the underworld into the world above? I follow it and see how it crawls into the wall. I feel weird all over. A little house stands there with a portico, minuscule, snuggling against the rock. The serpents become infinitely small. I feel as if I too am shrinking. The walls enlarge into a huge mountain, and I see that I am below on the foundation of the crater in the underworld, and I stand before the house of the prophet. He steps out of the doors of his house. I say, I notice, Elijah, that you have shown me and let me experience all sorts of strange things and allowed me to come before you today, but I confess that it is all dark to me. Your world appears to me today in a new light. Just now, it was as if it was separated by starry distance from your place, which I still wanted to reach today. But behold, it seems to be the one and same place. Elijah responds, You wanted to come here far too much. I did not deceive you. You deceived yourself. He sees badly who wants to see. You have overreached yourself. I respond, It is true. I eagerly long to reach you, to hear more. Salome startled me and led me into bewilderment. I felt dizzy, because what she said seemed to me to be monstrous and like madness. Where is Salome? Elijah responded, How impetuous you are. What is up with you? Step over to the crystal and prepare yourself in its light. A wreath of fire shines around the stone. I am seized with fear at what I see. The coarse peasant's boot? The foot of a giant that crushes an entire city? I see the cross. The removal of the cross. The mourning. How agonizing this sight is. No longer do I yearn. I see the divine child, with the white serpent in his right hand, and the black serpent in his left hand. I see the green mountain the cross of Christ on it, and a stream of blood flowing from the summit of the mountain. I can look no longer. It is unbearable. I see the cross and Christ on it in his last hour in torment. At the foot of the cross, the black serpent coils itself. It has wound itself around my feet. I am held fast and I spread my arms wide. Salome draws near. The serpent has wound itself around my whole body, and my countenance is like that of a lion. Salome says, 
Mary was the mother of Christ. Do you understand? I say, I see that a terrible and incomprehensible power forces me to imitate the Lord in his final torment. But how can I presume to call Mary my mother? Salome says, You are Christ. I stand with outstretched arms like someone crucified, my body taut and horribly entwined by the serpent. I say, You, Salome, say that I am Christ? It is as if I stood alone on a high mountain with stiff, outstretched arms. The serpent squeezed my body in its terrible coils, and the blood streams from my body, spilling down the mountainside. Salome bends down to my feet and wraps her black hair round them. She lies thus for a long time. Then she cries. I see light. Truly she sees. Her eyes are open. The serpent falls from my body and lies languidly on the ground. I stride over it and kneel at the feet of the prophet, whose form shines like a flame. Elijah says, Your work is fulfilled here. Other things will come. Seek, never tiring, and above all, write exactly what you see. Salome looks in rapture at the light that streams from the prophet. Elijah transforms into a huge flame of white light. The serpent wraps itself around her foot, as if paralyzed. Salome kneels before the light in wonderstruck devotion. Tears fall from my eyes, and I hurry out into the night, like one who has no part in the glory of the mystery. My feet do not touch the ground of this earth and it is as if I were melting into air. My longing led me up to the overbright day, whose light is the opposite to the dark space of forethinking. The opposite principle is, as I think I understand it, heavenly love, the mother, the darkness that surrounds forethinking appears to be due to the fact that it is invisible in the interior and takes place in the depths. But the brightness of love seems to come from the fact that love is visible life and action. My pleasure was with forethinking and had its merry garden there, surrounded by darkness and night. I climbed down to my pleasure, but ascended to my love. I see Elijah high above me. This indicates that forethinking stands nearer to love than I, a man, do. Before I ascend to love, a condition must be fulfilled, which represents itself as the fight between the two serpents. Left is day, right is night. The realm of love is light, the realm of forethinking is dark. Both principles have separated themselves strictly and are even hostile to one another and have taken on the form of serpents. This form indicates the demonic nature of both principles. I recognize in this struggle a repetition of that vision where I first saw the struggle between the sun and the black serpent. At that time, the loving light was annihilated and blood began to pour out. This was the great war, but the spirit of the depths wants the struggle to be understood as a conflict in every man's own nature since after the death of the hero, our urge to live could no longer imitate anything. It therefore went into the depths of every man and excited the terrible conflict between the powers of the depths. Forethinking is singleness. Love is togetherness. Both need one another, and yet they kill one another. Since men do not know that the conflict occurs inside themselves, they go mad, and one lays the blame on the other. If one half of mankind is at fault, then every man is half at fault. But he does not see the conflict in his own soul which is, however, the source of the outer disaster. If you are aggravated against your brother, think that you are aggravated against the brother in you, that is, against what in you is similar to your brother. As a man, you are a part of mankind, and therefore you have a share in the whole of mankind, as if you were the whole of mankind. If you overpower and kill your fellow man who is contrary to you, then you also kill that person in yourself and have murdered a part of your life. The spirit of this dead man follows you and does not let your life become joyful. You need your wholeness to live onward. If I myself endorse this pure principle, I step to one side and become one-sided, therefore my forethinking in the principle of the heavenly mother becomes an ugly dwarf who lives in a dark cave like an unborn in the womb. You do not follow him, even if he says to you that you could drink wisdom from his source. But forethinking appears to you there as dwarfish cleverness, false and of the night, just as the heavenly mother appears to me down there as Salome. That which is lacking in the pure principle appears as the serpent. The hero strives after the utmost and the pure principle, and therefore he finally falls for the serpent. If you go thinking, take your heart with you. If you go to love, take your head with you. Love is empty without thinking, thinking hollow without love. The serpent lurks behind the pure principle. Therefore I lost courage, until I found the serpent that at once led me across to the other principle. In climbing down, I become smaller. Great is he who is in love, since love is the present act of the great creator the present moment of the becoming and lapsing of the world. Mighty is he who loves. But whoever distances himself from love feels himself powerful. In your forethinking, you recognize the nullity of your current being as the smallest point between the infinity of what has passed and of what is to come. The thinker is small. He feels great if he distances himself from thinking. But if we speak about appearances, 
It is the other way around. To whoever is in love, form is a trifling, but his field of vision ends with a form given to him. To whoever is in thinking, form is unsurpassable in the height of heaven. But at night he sees the diversity of the innumerable worlds and their never-ending cycles. Whoever is in love is a full and overflowing vessel and awaits the giving. Whoever is in forethinking is deep and hollow and awaits fulfillment. Love and forethinking are in one and the same place. Love cannot be without forethinking, and forethinking cannot be without love. Man is always too much in one or the other. This comes with human nature. Animals and plants seem to have enough in every way. Only man staggers between too much and too little. He wavers. He is uncertain how much he must give here and how much there. His knowledge and ability is insufficient, and yet he must still do it himself. Man doesn't only grow from within himself, for he is also creative, from within himself. The God becomes revealed in him. Human nature is little skilled in divinity, and therefore man fluctuates between too much and too little. The spirit of this time has condemned us to haste. You have no more futurity and no more past if you serve the spirit of this time. We need the life of eternity. We bear the future and the past in the depths. The future is old and the past is young. You serve the spirit of this time and believe that you are able to escape the spirit of the depths. But the depths do not hesitate any longer and will force you into the mysteries of Christ. It belongs to this mystery that man is not redeemed through the hero, but becomes a Christ himself. The antecedent example of the saints symbolically teaches us this. Whoever wants to see will see badly. It was my will that deceived me. It was my will that provoked a huge uproar among the daemons. Should I therefore not want anything? I have, and I have fulfilled my will as well as I could. And thus I fed everything in me that strived. In the end, I found that I wanted myself in everything, but without looking for myself. Therefore, I no longer wanted to seek myself outside of myself, but within. Then I wanted to grasp myself, and then I wanted to go on again, without knowing what I wanted, and thus I fell into the mystery. Did I therefore not want anything anymore? You wanted this war. That is good. If you had not, then the evil of this war would have been small. But with your wanting, you make the evil great. If you do not succeed in producing the greatest evil out of this war, you will never learn the violent deed and learn to overcome fighting what lies outside you. Therefore, it is good if you want this greatest evil with your whole heart. You are Christians and run after heroes, and wait for redeemers who should take the agony on themselves for you, and totally spare you Golgotha. With that, you pile up a mountain of cavalry all over Europe. If you succeed in making a terrible evil out of this war, and throw innumerable victims into this abyss, this is good, since it makes each of you ready to sacrifice himself. For as I, you draw closer to the accomplishment of Christ's mystery. You already feel the fist of the Iron One on your back. This is the beginning of the way. If blood, fire, and the cry of distress fill this world, then you will recognize yourself in your acts. Drink your fill of the bloody atrocities of the war. Feast upon the killing and destruction. Then your eyes will open. You will see that you yourselves are the bearers of such fruit. You are on the way if you will all this. Willing creates blindness, and blindness leads to the way. Should we will error? You should not. But you do will that error which you take for your best truth, as men have always done. The symbol of the crystal signifies the unalterable law of events that come of itself. In this seed you grasp what is to come. I saw something terrible and incomprehensible. It was on the night of Christmas, day of the year 1913. I saw the peasant's boot, the sign of the horrors of the peasant war, of murdering incendiaries and of bloody cruelty. I knew to interpret the sign for myself as nothing but the fact that something bloody and dreadful lay before us. I saw the foot of a giant that crushed a whole city. How could I interpret this sign otherwise? I saw that the way to self-sacrifice began here. They will all become terribly enraptured by these tremendous experiences, and in their blindness will want to understand them as outer events. It is an inner happening. That is the way to the perfection of the mystery of Christ, so that the people learn self-sacrifice. May the frightfulness become so great that it can turn men's eyes inward, so that their will no longer seeks the self in others, but in themselves. I saw it. I know that this is the way. I saw the death of Christ, and I saw his lament. I felt the agony of his dying, of the great dying. I saw a new God, a child, who subdued daemons in his hand. The God holds the separate principles in his power. He unites them. The God develops through the union of the principles in me. He is their union. If you will one of these principles, so you are in one, but far from your being other. If you will both principles, one and the other, then you excite the conflict between the principles, since you cannot want both at the same time. From this arises the need. The God appears in it. He takes your conflicting will in his hand, in the hand of a child whose will is simple and beyond conflict. You cannot learn this. It can only develop in you. You cannot will this. It takes the will from your hand and wills itself. Will yourself. 
that leads to the way. But fundamentally, you are terrified of yourself, and therefore you prefer to run to all others rather than to yourself. I saw the mount of the sacrifice, and the blood poured in streams from its sides. When I saw how pride and power satisfied men, how beauty beamed from the eyes of women when the great war broke out, I knew that mankind was on the way to self-sacrifice. The spirit of the depths had seized mankind and forces self-sacrifice upon it. Do not seek the guilt here or there. The spirit of the depths clutched the fate of man unto itself, as it clutched mine. He leads mankind through the river of blood to the mystery. In the mystery, man himself becomes the two principles, the lion and the serpent. Because I also want my being other, I must become a Christ. I am made into Christ. I must suffer it. Thus the redeeming blood flows. Through the self-sacrifice, my pleasure is changed and goes above into its higher principle. Love is sighted, but pleasure is blind. Both principles are one in the symbol of the flame. The principles strip themselves of human form. The mystery showed me in images what I should afterward live. I did not possess any of those boons that the mystery showed me, for I still had to earn all of them. End of part one. Wow. All I can say is that was very intense. Uh, especially that section where he talks about the Great War, also known as World War I to us, as World War II followed. He had not known during this time that it would. He talks about it being an inner psychological event, basically, that was expressed on an outer world scale. And he talks of these terrible atrocities that were committed as actually somehow being a necessary aspect of human growth. Now, he doesn't condone the war, but he seems to point out that there's some great spiritual lesson to be learned from it. It's interesting also to note that shortly thereafter, World War II broke out and World War I was no longer known as the Great War. So perhaps the lesson wasn't learned. We certainly live in times of conflict where it seems like any moment a large-scale battle or something of the like can take place. What Carl Jung tells us is to not focus so much about the external world, what's going on in politics, what's going on with different conflicts, but to look within ourselves for where that conflict is and deal with it there. I think that's his deepest point here, that we need to look within, as many of the spiritual traditions have said, and find a resolution of the conflict in there rather than trying to find peace outside in the world. I think this is a really deep insight. The thing he says at the end too, about all of these visions being shown to him, but that he had not earned any of them is particularly interesting. I think he's indicating that there was almost a vision of a prophecy of what his life could be, but he still had to walk the path. And I think that's an amazing metaphor for how our lives can be, especially in the things that we might see in our dreams, in visions we have during sleep, things of those nature, that just because we dream of it or believe in it doesn't mean we're there yet. Just because we read it in a book, just because we have an ideal doesn't mean we're there yet, but we still have to walk the path. And the path is, as he says, not an imitation of Christ, as he talks about. The path is becoming Christ-like oneself. I think that rings very true in these uh, days, that simply mimicking great people, religious people, is not enough. But you yourself have to walk your own version of their path. What he also mentions, which is pretty scary, is that that path can be filled with much suffering and that it's not only bliss and happiness, like the New Age movement has led us to believe, that the path is actually filled with much suffering, much pain, much confusion and doubt. But I think that is what is particularly powerful about it, because that means if you're not feeling great about your life or you feel like you're doing everything you can, but you're still in a dark place, you're not necessarily wrong. There's not anything you're necessarily doing wrong, but there is something you can do to look within yourself and see what the meaning of it is and what's your way forward, that our bad feelings or our bad moods, um, negative circumstances can actually lead to a much greater wisdom for ourselves if we see them in the correct way. And I think that's the beauty of the Red Book, that he details a journey that Carl Jung 
took into his own psyche and how the rest of his life, he said himself, was an elaboration on the visions that he saw. So much of his scientific works that he wrote on psychology, including writing papers on archetypes, ideas like anima and animus, the shadow, the personality types that later became Myers-Briggs. All these ideas, he said himself, came from these visions that he had when he was using this technique called active imagination, which is essentially a technique that is kind of similar to what may be known now as manifesting, but it has a little bit of a different aim. So it has to do with visualizing something occurring in your minds and then kind of getting into that vision. This is basically what he did. And it seems at least from this book that he actually had these visions, that these weren't just in his imagination, but he actually saw these things because of how diligently he practiced this kind of imagination. And the responses of the characters in the book, like Elijah and Salome, which you can look into on your own if you want to Wikipedia those names, and you'll get a better understanding of who he's referring to. These are characters from the biblical tradition. And the fact that he recoils in horror at Salome, if you look up her name, you'll see why that is the case. And the mention of John the Baptist is in there, and also of Elijah. He's uh, associated with the flaming chariot at times in the biblical tradition. So I hope you guys enjoyed this reading. And be sure to check out the Red Book Liber Novus, a reader's edition. It is edited with an introduction by Sanu Shamdasani, who is a scholar of Carl Jung's work. It's translated by Mark Kybers, John Peck, and also Sanu Shamdasani, a publication of film and series in association with the foundation of the works of Carl Jung. So if you guys enjoy the Story Hour or the Herbal Hour podcast, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Herbal Hour. Give us a subscribe, a review, maybe a comment about what you liked, what you want to hear. We also have a homepage website. It's herbalhourpodcast.com. And we're on Spotify for some people I know have told me that they like Spotify for podcasts and check our videos out on YouTube on the Herbal Hour podcast channel. Hope to see you guys there. Thanks for listening.